Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. This episode features Dr. Tiffany E. Barber, a prize-winning, internationally recognized scholar, curator, and critic whose writing and expert commentary appears in top-tier academic journals, popular media outlets, and award-winning documentaries. Her work spans abstraction, dance, fashion, feminism, film, and the ethics of representation, focusing on artists of the Black diaspora working in the United States and the broader Atlantic world. Her latest curatorial project, a virtual multimedia exhibition for Google Arts and Culture examines the value of Afrofuturism in times of crisis. Dr. Barber is currently Assistant Professor of African American Art at the University of California, Los Angeles, as well as Curator-in-Residence at the Delaware Contemporary. Prior to joining the faculty at UCLA, she was Assistant Professor of Africana Studies and Art History at the University of Delaware. She has completed fellowships at the Delaware Art Museum, the University of Virginia's Carter G. Woodson Institute for African American and African Studies, and the Getty Research Institute, to name a few. Dr. Barber is a recipient of the Smithsonian's 2022 National Portrait Gallery's Director's Essay Prize. Enjoy this episode featuring Dr. Tiffany Barber. Tiffany, thank you for joining me today. I've really been looking forward to this episode. Same, same. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> when did you recognize your interest in the various arts? I grew up with a very active and talented mother. She was a single mother when I was born and would put me in all kinds of activities. And she was also a visual artist herself, self-taught had taken some art classes, but really working from her own imagination and kind of modeling. And by modeling, I mean like drawing and drawing from life and drawing from magazine cutouts and things that she would find that motivated her. And so I grew up in that environment. She was making art all the time. We made art together. She realized early on that I had a pension for being in front of the television and entertaining people. So she put me in dance classes and I became a dancer. I trained professionally for 20 years and I still take class and I still train. I just don't perform anymore. But I moved to New York to be a dancer and I trained at the Ailey School, did my BFA there, and of course immersed in the arts economy, arts ecology of New York really unlocked some things for me. And then I got injured in my first year of college and began thinking about what kind of career path I would want to take after my performance career was over. And I knew that I was interested in Black history and African-American studies growing up in Oklahoma. 
there wasn't a robust conversation at the institutional level about Oklahoma's own Black history, but I knew that it was rich and deep, partially because of my mother, leading me to study and research things like the Tulsa Race Massacre, on which I ended up writing a history report when I was in fifth grade. So this was all kind of like in the background and intellectually. And then in New York at Fordham, I started taking classes toward a minor in African-American studies. And then I switched it to urban studies because I could still have this kind of diverse coursework that would either send me into a PhD program or I would do city planning or I might end up directing a site-specific dance festival, which is totally what I thought I was going to do. I ended up getting my master's degree in curatorial practices in the public sphere, thinking that I would move back to the East coast and work in cultural affairs. But I ended up actually working in the art world in LA at the time that the contemporary art scene kind of took off here through nonprofit exhibition spaces, gallery spaces, the museums here. I was doing a lot of consulting and curatorial work. And from there, one of my master's thesis advisors um, suggested that I look into PhD programs and look into non-traditional art history programs where I could bring my dance background together with my professional curatorial practice and kind of theorize that as a methodology. And so that's what I did. Yeah. But art has always been a part of my life. It's always been there from the beginning. I don't I don't remember a time without art actually. Do you ever think about what path you would have taken or where you would be now if you hadn't had the injury? Yeah, I don't think about it as much anymore, but in my 20s, I, I thought about it a lot. And it's hard to say. I think I probably I think I think probably still would have taken a, a similar path, but it would have taken longer. I would have had more time performing. So I ended up going directly out of college into a master's program to set the groundwork for potentially going to a PhD program later. And I was still dancing at that time, doing you know small gigs, commercial work. And then I just decided that I really didn't want to be in this kind of cutthroat competitive world. The dance world has changed a little bit since then, so thankfully. But I will say that my work would not look the way that it looks now without this journey. Mm -hmm. I bring a lot of my dance background into my work. Dance was my, I always say, was my first kind of introduction to visual analysis because as a dancer, it's mimetic, right? You look at the person or the, the entity that's giving choreography. It could be a machine too. It doesn't have to be a person, but in my case, it was mostly a, per a person or a video screen, learning choreography from a video screen. And then you have to translate that movement to your body and make it look like what you've just seen. And so this kind of back and forth digestion visually into physical movement and then back again to make a kind of picture, make an image that moves, right, was really my first introduction to visual analysis. So as an art historian now, like I draw heavily on that experience and I try to teach my students to do the same, to not only bring their own lived experience to the classroom and to think about the skills that they already possess, but to, to help them think more boldly and broadly about where and how visual analysis shows up in their lives or can help them um, make better sense of their world. So yeah, so and a lot of my scholarship has been on dance so far, a lot of my scholarship so far. Most of the peer-reviewed essays that I've written and exhibition catalog essays have been on dancers or dance makers or designers who collaborated with dancers. In the case of Willie Smith, fashion designer, who was working with dancers as models and, you know, creating these really kind of multidisciplinary displays and presentations that were at the intersection of fashion and postmodern art and dance and design and theater. So yeah, I do think about if my trajectory had been different had I stayed in the dance performance world a little longer. But like I said, I still dance. And in fact, up until the pandemic, I was performing in a West African dance ensemble in Philadelphia where I was living at the time. And so it's still very much a part of my life and still very much informs my work now. Wow. 
That's fascinating. It's great that you have the perspective to bring, you know, to the table. Mm-hmm. And what do you enjoy most in your curatorial role? I love working with artists. I love being in conversation with them. I love studio visits. Even if nothing, even if a project doesn't come out of it, I learned so much about materials, about process, about conceptualism and, and how artists are thinking and are, are processing and mediating their roles in relationship to what's going on around them in their environments, as well as these kind of like broader global issues around politics and identity and how we relate to one another, nationalisms, all of these things. So what I enjoy most about my curatorial role um, right now as curator in residence at the Delaware Contemporary, which is kind of a holdover from my last position um, when I was teaching at the University of Delaware, is bringing a kind of really just a, an African diasporic lens to their programming, their exhibition programming. All of my work focuses on artists of the, Afri- of the Black diaspora and either living in the United States or the broader Atlantic world. And I have been programming, doing some exhibitions that have featured artists that have, were either born on the continent or are first generation, but have really long-standing ties with their local communities on the continent. So I did a a public project with Simpiwe Ndizube, who's a South African-born artist who now lives in Los Angeles. One of the public projects that's up right now is with Ntare Kumambahomwine, who's actually a filmmaker and actor who has been kind of collaborating with the archive of a Ugandan studio photographer whom he met and forged a relationship with, kind of kismet. His car was stranded and they met and he um, ended up forging a relationship with this photographer and kind of traveling back and forth whenever he would be in Uganda um, and connecting with him up until his death. And now he is the shepherd, and Tade is the shepherd of the photographer's archive. And so he's been collaborating with the archive, going back to the town where the photographer's studio was to kind of identify folks who were in the photographs and or their descendants. And he staged a public exhibition in this town recently. And then now we have this public project in, in Wilmington, Delaware, that's really thinking about diaspora and movement and migration and the photographic archive and care and nourishment, which is the um, keyword for this exhibition cycle at the Delaware Contemporary. So it's really great to be in conversation with artists and help them realize projects that otherwise wouldn't be possible. Like this archive, no one knows about it, really. I mean, Antare has been kind of publicizing it the last year and a half, I'd say, pretty heavily. And it's gotten some great traction, but it's like the archive with which Tintare has been collaborating is from a Ugandan photographer named Chibati Solongo. And Chibati was active at the same time as kind of more known African photographers like like Malik Sadibe and San Lesori. But in contrast to those photographers who were really kind of focused on urban scenes and kind of tracking city life after British colonial rule was over. British colonial rule in the 1960s. So 1960, Burkina Faso, Sam Sori was active then and Malik Sidibe, obviously, in also the same time period, but also in West Africa and the Republic of Mali. And Shibati, again, was on the East, East African side in Uganda and really focused on kind of rural life 
and just a different kind of demographic and a different setting, um, but still practicing studio photography and kind of documenting what was happening in this area of Uganda in the 1960s and 70s and 80s up until his death. And so it's kind of an interesting counterpoint to the more well-known African photographers that we have access to that have become kind of namesakes in the in the marketplace. So you must enjoy doing research. I do. I do very much. Yeah, I'm very lucky that I get to I get to live a life of, of research and doing the things that I love that I, I'm also naturally inclined to do. Is there a particular artist that really influenced you? One artist that has had a major impact on my work has been Wangechi Mutu, born in Nairobi, worked in New York for 25 years, is now back and forth between Nairobi and New York, and it's just very global at this point, very international. Seeing her collages at Suzanne Bellmetter Gallery, actually, in Los Angeles, gosh, it's got to be like 16 years ago at this point, and really kind of being blown away by the imagery and the technique and the narratives that she was kind of displacing the narratives about the historical avant-garde, about collage practice, about Black women's bodies and their reproductive capacities. And then fast forward, I saw her work well before I even started thinking about a, a PhD. And then when I started writing my dissertation, I started developing a seminar paper that I had written that was comparing Gechi Mutu's Non-Genevergarian collage from 2007. That was part of her Yo and I series that she developed for her first kind of international solo exhibition in London um, with Victoria Miro. And the scene, the self-apputation scene of the protagonist in Octavia Butler's Kindred. And so kind of thinking about, thinking about Wangechi's background and upbringing in this East African context, but also she did her schooling in Wales and in the UK and then being in New York for art school and then, of course, Yale. And then the imagery that Wangechi is using is, is very cyborgian. And I was thinking about science fiction and came across this term Afrofuturism. And again, this is 10 years ago at this point, 11, 12 years ago at this point. So Afrofuturism was not the, wasn't the hot button term then that it is now, of course, in the wake of Black Panther 1 and 2. <laughs> now we have a very robust conversation about Afrofuturism within popular discourse. But at that time, it wasn't. And it was a term that was being applied to Wangechi's work um, frequently. And, but as a way of explaining an overcoming of or a reclamation of or a recovery from trauma. And, you know, most of the time, the U.S., the historical trauma that critics are talking about or that they expect Black artists to address is the trauma of slavery. Well, Wangechi wasn't born in the U.S. Um, and so her construction and, and understanding of Blackness is very different. It's coming from an, uh, an East African context, a majority Black country. And she talks about these in, this in interviews. So I was interested in that difference, but also the relationship that she had to this term Afrofuturism, to cyborgian imagery, to dismemberment and time travel. And so seeing those collages and being in conversation with Wangechi over the years has really transformed how I think about Black women's art today. What aspects of the visual arts world would you say are most promising right now? I would say that the curatorial space is becoming blacker and blacker, and I love that for us. I think that there's a longstanding curatorial tradition within the HBCU context, um, historically black colleges and universities, and within black communities in general, especially artists who had to also be educators, who had to also be their own archivists, who had to also be their own gallerists, who had to, you know, we've always had this kind of 
multi-hyphenate portfolio approach in Black communities, I think. And the way that programs like the curatorial um, program at Spelman for undergraduates in the Atlantic Center are changing the, the conversation and preparing in an institutional context, right? In a professional context within institutions, preparing Black students to take up museum jobs and curatorial roles um, and really change the structure of exhibition display and kinds of um, white supremacist concepts that continue to be um, reinforced by museum structures, I think is really an important moment. I'm excited to see what that program inspires um, nationally and what the conversation will be like in 10 years, 20 years, as, as more Black gallerists kind of come to the fore. And I really want there to be more exhibition spaces ethically run by Black folks, because we have to talk about that too. Like, just because there's a Black person installed in a, in a position doesn't necessarily mean that they are about Black people or about the liberation of an advancement of Black people. But I would love to see a development from here being ethical Black gallerists showcasing more and more Black artists such that Black artists can kind of change how they want to engage in the marketplace rather than having to only default to non-Black gallerists who may not understand their work as much, even you know if they have schooling and they have experience, the narratives that I'm seeing in terms of like press releases and exhibition catalog essays and things like that from non-Black writers and institutions that are not centering Black life are still very mm, objectifying, fetishistic. And so I would love to see that be a, a change that results from the kind of shift that we're seeing, the paradigmatic shift, I think, that we're seeing in terms of institutional culture and training Black students to go into the museum field. And within the museum universe, what do you feel is the role of the Black trustee? Do you feel they can be helpful in bringing about change? Absolutely. We have a number of examples. I mean, David Driscoll was a prime example before his passing and really changed institutional culture wherever he went. And the way that he was able to do that was being a trustee, being inside, being an, in, an advisor and a consultant, in addition to this kind of longer history of art making that he had and of, of curatorial practice and mentoring. I think that, again, I think that it depends on the political commitments of that Black trustee. I mean, there are Black trustees that want to make change. There are Black trustees that are just kind of there for the parties and the recognition, and which is fine. I mean, you know, there are 40 million ways to be black, as um, Skip, Skip Gates says. <laughs> but I do think that it is a position of power and it is possible to kind of put pressure on institutions to make some active changes, even if they're slow going. Mm-hmm. What do you feel is the purpose of art and what is the role of the artist? I think a lot about the role, the social responsibility of artists, of Black artists in particular, since that's the focus of my research agenda and my curatorial practice. And I'm preparing to teach a class in the spring quarter titled The Idea of Black Art. We're really going to kind of be looking at the literature and the scholarship that has been trying to or has in some capacity categorized Black art and Black aesthetics in a particular way coming out of certain and specific political moments in the U.S. and in the diaspora. And part of that development, the development of the phrasing Black art and Black aesthetic is this very key question for Black artists themselves. Like, what is there, What is our social responsibility, if any? Do we need to be burdened by social responsibility? And I think that those debates are ongoing. I don't necessarily have a direct answer, but I think that the debate is a productive one, particularly within Black communities and how Black folks want to situate themselves in relationship to the museum, in relationship to the marketplace, in relationship to their practices, in relationship to each other. 
I think black artists should be able to choose what they want to do. And I think the best kind of work is the kind of work that is coming from a place of deep commitment, whether that is political or aesthetic or cultural or racial or economic or, you know, as long as I think that artists who are in their studios working out solutions and thinking about their broader communities and wanting to leverage their practice to either bolster communities that they come from, create art spaces and residencies, kind of just leverage their position. So I think, I mean, I guess that kind of gets at your question of social responsibility or what's the what's the role of the artist. And I think that my answer now talking through it is that artists, like I do myself, is to leverage the positions of power and privilege that we're able to occupy as intellectuals, as as creatives, as makers to not only forward our own practices and invest in ourselves, but also kind of bolster the folks around us and leverage our positions for the betterment of Black life. And do you feel Black art can be defined? I think there are moments where the agendas of certain folks who are writing and thinking and making Black art are clear. Like the Black arts movement, we're clear. <laughs> like we're clear on those on those thinkers and the debates that were happening. The Harlem Renaissance the same. So I think that there are these kind of flashpoints um, where there are definitions that arise that we can trace and track. I don't know if Black art has ever been a kind of unified front or a unitary sign. But I do think that, again, the debates that emerge around Black art and Black aesthetics at certain flashpoints in the historical kind of arc of the last, say, 200 years are productive and ongoing and are sometimes they repeat. But one of the things I like to think about and try to train my students to do is to think about historical specificity. Like certain ideas about Black art are coming at particular times and from particular thinkers who occupy particular positions. And so we have to kind of reckon with all of those things and those differences that existed then that don't necessarily exist now, not necessarily because of progress. They, I'm not saying that they've disappeared, but more so like, you know, what was happening in 1901 is not the same as 2023. And so I think it's it's important to key and tune our eyes and ears to those differences and think about the past, give it its own specificity and its own particularity and honor that rather than kind of seeing it as a continuum or seeing it as this kind of unitary thing that persists over time when in fact that doesn't actually explain historical change or leave room to explain historical change. I agree with that. So what are you excited about right now? Oh, um, I'm excited about my next project. Actually, I've been talking to a lot of folk in my community about surrealism. I co-edited this project that was thinking about what new forms of criticism are possible, Black arts criticism in particular, in the 21st century. And I came to that question or kind of approached that question through a commission project that lives online called New Black Surrealisms that I co-edited with um, a colleague who teaches at Tulane, Jerome Dent. And we really were looking at present day artists who were using surrealist imagery or techniques in their work to kind of picture black experience, fracture black experience, fracture kind of state notions of what we think black experience is and or produces. Through that project, I actually started looking back and thinking about the black presence in surrealism and the historical avant-garde period of the turn of the 20th century and how it gets written about in art history and how there's really a, a, a lack of scholarship around the Black presence in surrealism. So I've been traveling and seeing shows that are trying to kind of shift the narrative about uh, the master narrative of surrealism away from a kind of Paris-centric narrative that focuses on Andre Breton and his network 
um, when in fact there were very prominent black thinkers and intellectuals that he was in conversation with concurrently while surrealism, while he was developing his ideas about surrealism, that he was drawing exchanges from to develop his ideas about surrealism. There were also students at the Sorbonne, Black Caribbean students um, and other folks from the Black world at the Sorbonne who were also trying to think about surrealism in relationship to Black experience um, at the same time that's, that Breton was kind of becoming more and more prominent writing his manifestos. And so they're at least parallel, if not antecedent. So I've been thinking a lot about surrealism and not just in terms of like, oh, Picasso appropriated African masks. like. And obviously Picasso wasn't a surrealist, but the historical avant-garde artists who get kind of propped up as these masters and geniuses appropriating Black forms, um, African forms. But I'm also thinking about actual artists and intellectuals and makers and thinkers who were transforming art making and conversations about Black experience through surrealism, even if they didn't identify as a surrealist per se, but were using imagery and techniques to yeah, to make sense of the world in a black body. And that continues from basically like the 20s, 30s onward to the 80s specifically. So I'm looking at that period and trying to resituate the narrative and, and locate surrealism in its Afrocentric origins. What style of painting do you prefer, abstraction or figurative? Mm-hmm. I, funny enough, I teach a class. I'm actually about to run this class again in the spring quarter called The Black Portrait. And it really is training students to think about the problems and promises of Black figuration as they have developed over time in concert with ideas about Black art and Black aesthetics from the early 20th century to now. I'm also interested in teaching students and thinking through these questions, these problems myself of how the Black figure continues to be the kind of motivating force for the art market and how easily consumable Black figuration has become. I know that there's a lot of talk about abstraction being the kind of next trend in Black artistic production, but abstraction has always been a part of Black black artistic production. Abstraction, like African art objects, like those are abstractions. Geometric forms, cosmological ideas that were being channeled into or, or transformed into forms and sculptures and paintings. Abstraction has always been a part of Black life, not just in terms of art making, but also thinking about Black experience, like the, or Black embodiment even, like the very process of racialization is 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 an abstraction, um, is to force abstraction, is to force Black people to exist as abstract forms that can be commodified, sold, and traded. And so abstraction has always been a part of Black discourse. So I think it's interesting that curators and critics are kind of like, oh, abstraction is the next trend in Black artistic production. And I don't think that's true. I think that there's room for Black abstraction and figuration. And I think the way that they talk to one another and kind of move in tandem with one another and come to prominence at different times over one another um, and switch back and forth over time, kind of flip-flop, is really interesting and tells us a lot about the kinds of political sensibilities of Black makers. You know, in the 1960s, Norman Lewis and others turned to abstraction to kind of distance themselves or not distance themselves, but to say that Black makers should be able to make art because we are artists, not because necessarily we're Black, but that doesn't mean that we're going to deny or obscure our Black identities. But abstraction can also be a political force, a different kind of political force that's not necessarily didactic or about a specific kind of protest that requires or demands 
recognition afterwards. That abstraction could kind of live in a different space and generate very different results and ends when it comes to thinking about Black relations, Black social relations, and how, how Black folks think about their political commitments, their aesthetic innovations and experimentation, and the risks that they're taking in their studios, and thinking very deeply about Blackness as a signifier, but not necessarily in the same ways as a figurative painter would do that was trying to kind of either render likeness, although there are now figurative painters who are painting fictional characters, but still like I'm always struck by, you know, what is the purpose of the black figure? Like what motivates someone to continue to to draw faces, to paint faces? What do we expect a black portrait to do? Those are kind of some of the questions that I that I think about in my in my teaching and my research in terms of the relationship between abstraction and figuration. Thank you. This has been a great interview and this is our last question. How do you want to impact the art world? Oh Big question. (laughs) Big role. (laughs) I know. When I started doing this work, I really wanted to give Black artists platforms to experiment, to realize parts of their practice that they had either let lay dormant or had suppressed or hadn't really had time or resources to investigate. And I still do that in my curatorial practice. So in terms of the impact that I would like to have on the art world, that's one of them. I'm in the process of developing an artist residency, and I know that everybody and their mom seems to have an artist residency right now. But I think it's really important to really think about the, you know, the Latin roots of curate to care for, right? And to really care for Black artists and to create a a sanctuary where they can go to either just restore, rest, to ideate, to free write, to sleep, to create new things related to their project, to conceptualize or their practice to conceptualize things that are beyond their practice. Like if you're a painter and and you draw and you, or you sculpt primarily, but you're also wanting to move multidisciplinarily, but you haven't had a chance to explore performance or you haven't had a chance to explore printmaking. And you're also interested in additions and trying to be kind of like financially solvent and, and independent and autonomous, like, and really thinking about the overlaps in concerns of those questions for artists and like like what being a professional artist and a full-time working artist entails and demands. So that's part of the residency space that I'm kind of thinking about. And then the other part is really tied to my research. The impact I would like to have is after my first, you know, I'm, I'm finishing my first book right now. And one of the main through lines is really kind of thinking about, again, this question of Black aesthetic criticism. What forms of criticism do we have to to sit with and think with the ambivalent, irreverent, undesirable ways of Blackness and Black visuality that Black artists themselves are self-consciously engaging with as well. Um, And in particular, I mean, in my first book, I'm only focusing on Black women. And I, I really am interested in changing the conversation about how we write about Black artists um, and the terms that we use and, you know, whether you're Black or non-Black, really kind of reconciling and reckoning with your own positionality in the world such that there might be an unbridgeable distance between you and that art practice or you and that artist and making space to kind of say that and let that be a space of generative impact and kind of sitting with our differences rather than trying to discipline them. So interesting. I really appreciate your perspective. And thank you for your time. It was great to interview you. (laughs) Thanks, Tiffany. Thank you so much, Phyllis. This was really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.